Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Franci, and I am your host, and I want to begin by saying thank you for listening. On this show, I am having conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some amazing and extraordinary results in both their life and business. My intention is to inspire and help you learn and grow by having my guests share their journey of how they face and overcome their challenges, but also how they celebrate their many wins. And now let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today, Jonathan Jay, is the author of his book, Business Buying Strategies, and he himself has been an entrepreneur since dropping out of university at the age of 19. Now, 50 years old, he has built businesses in publishing, digital marketing, adult education and coaching, and has gone on to then sell each of those businesses. During the pandemic, he made 48 business acquisitions to create the fourth largest group in his sector in under three years. One notable deal was buying a $5 million annual revenue digital marketing company from its private equity owner for just 1 million pounds. That individual sold the business because he was on the edge of burnout and Jonathan believes you can achieve success without your business taking over your life. He now helps other people buy businesses and guides them in avoiding the expensive mistakes that he himself has made far too often. But without any further delays, let's get on with the show. Jonathan Jay, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire podcast. Thanks for joining me. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. This is going to be fun. It is. Now, you're uh, you're in London. You're in the UK. I am. And uh, what time is it there, by the way? So I'm recording this at uh, 10 a.m. Pacific time. Uh, what's the time difference? You're like, but, okay, yeah, so it's uh, six o'clock in the evening. Okay, so, it's, so not it's so bad. Dark outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but not so bad. It's not so bad. Uh, so that's awesome. Well, again, thanks for joining me. So, Jonathan, you know, let's always what I like to do is open with uh, kind of your point of view because uh, my intro uh, never does justice to what my guests are uh, doing. So, tell me a little bit. What do you do when people ask you? What's your, you know, what do you do? What's your answer to that question? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a tough one. It depends who's asking. So I, I change the answer depending on who's asking. So if it's a business owner that's asking, then I tell them that, um, yeah, I've owned businesses since I was 19 years old and I've always done my own thing and I've never worked for anyone else. And we have that sort of businessy type uh, conversation. Uh, if it's someone who isn't in business, then they think that's the strangest thing they've ever heard. Uh, so I tell them that I run a consultancy business and they they get that. So the answer depends on who's asking me the question. But really, when you think about the answer in terms of overall, I mean, you're a business guy, you're a business development, you know, you you actually kind of, a, we'll call it a business incubator. You'd like to take businesses and, and ramp them up. I know that's part of it. And as mm -hmm. well as you're a world-class coach in terms of supporting uh, entrepreneurs and investors taking their businesses to the next level. So give me a little bit into what Jonathan Jay does in terms of your business model. I mean, you're very accomplished. You've been doing this for many years. You're still a relatively young man. And uh, give well, me very some- very kind of you to say so. Oh, hey, listen, <laughs> I got lots on everybody. So it's all, you're all young to me. So the, the question, I guess, is really that is, you know, Tell me a little bit about the business model and uh, what it is that you do to support entrepreneurs or business owners in what they do. Yes, yeah, sure. So 
So over the years, I've really um, made my living from buying and selling businesses. And I'm, I'm not a good operator. Um, I'm a lousy manager. Uh, I, I, I'm just not very good at, at operating and running businesses. I'm far better at buying them and, uh, and sometimes selling them uh, as, as well. And over the last five or six years, I have realized that so many people were asking me, how do you, how do, you do it? I thought, well, I'll, I'll run an event and I hired a hotel meeting room and 100 people came along to listen to me talking about how to buy a business. Uh, and then uh, more people said, when's the next one? So I went and did it again. And that was, I think that was six years ago now. So I've been doing that uh, ever since. And that's developed into a, a structured training program for people who want to buy a business. And the, the hook, if you like, that, that uh, makes it uh, even more attractive is how to buy a business in such a way that doesn't require you to put your own money into the deal. So how do we do the business acquisition 100% funded that does not require your personal cash? And that obviously opens it up to a lot of people who thought that uh, business uh, acquisition was out of their reach. You needed to have hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars in order to buy a business. And in actual fact, you don't need that. I was talking to a client just a couple of hours ago who paid $1 million for a, a tree surgeon business where they you know, have cut the trees and trimmed the trees. And uh, the, the business is making $500,000 a, a year. Uh, so he effectively paid two times annual pre-tax profits. Uh, paid a million dollars for it, uh, but not a penny of that million dollars was his, which was kind of lucky because he didn't have a million dollars to uh, to buy sure. the business, but he knew how to do it. So that didn't uh, that didn't stop him. So that's what I do at the moment. I bought a lot of businesses during the recession, exited all of those six, seven months ago last uh, last summer. Uh, and now I spend my time uh, with my, uh, my uh, daughter, who's seven in a couple of weeks time, and uh, and helping other people buy businesses. That's fantastic. You know, it's interesting because I come from the real estate space as, you know, an education-based business supporting real estate investors in growing a portfolio, creating a financial future through investing in real estate. And although we don't talk about, we're not teaching no money downs and those kind of deals, there is lots of opportunities in what we do teach is around joint venture agreements. And I know you're a real estate investor yourself. We talked about it very briefly, but you have investment real estate. And so from a real estate point of view, it makes total sense. You know, anybody uh, that's yeah. probably listening to this, that's from the RAIN community, our real estate investment network community is very familiar with the conversation about, okay, I need to grow a portfolio. I can't get money anymore. I can't borrow anymore, but I have great deals. And how do we you know, raise the capital to do that. So in the model of a business, and so whether we talk about the gentleman who, or the person who raised or came up with a million bucks to buy the business, give me a little bit of insights into some of the guidance. If somebody's listening to this and saying, well, how could I do that? What would be one or two kind of thought processes or tactics perhaps that somebody would use? Yeah, sure. So the first thing is to choose the right business to buy. Because there are lots of businesses out there, lots of businesses that the seller would very happily sell to you. And quite often people stick to their comfort zone. So they stick to numbers that they're familiar with. So uh, if they've got a, a, a $300,000 house that they live in, then they go and buy a $300,000 business. It's kind of like a number that they feel comfortable with. Sure. Um, if you've got a $300,000 business making 20% profit, 
that's $60,000 of profit a year before tax. So that's a little bit like an income, like a job, really. But if you've got a million-dollar business making 20% profit, it's making $200,000 a year, that starts to move the needle, especially when you go and buy a second one, a third one, and a fourth one, and, and, and so on. So I think the biggest mistake that people make is that they, they go for businesses that are, that are too small that will never make enough money to really warrant the effort that it puts it, you put into buying the business. And then with larger businesses, they're easier to finance. So it's easier to pull together the finance to buy a larger business. Larger businesses typically are better run, which is why they are larger businesses. They, they, got, they got larger because they were doing something right. They've got their sales and their marketing working well. And the proof is they're larger businesses. And typically, larger businesses don't depend upon one person. They have some sort of management team. It might only be three or four people, but they have other people running the business. But with the small businesses, it's one guy. Sure. <laughs> you take the one guy out, and there's nothing, and there's nothing left. So, for example, with the um, the the tree business that uh, my client was telling me about this afternoon, he um, uh, he used a combination of. Uh, asset finance, because there were assets, physical assets in the business. He used cash that was sitting in the business. Uh, and in actual fact, he got a little bit of surprise when an extra $150,000 for a contract that had just been fulfilled arrived arrived in the bank account uh, the day before completion. Uh, that was a nice surprise. Uh, and some vendor financing, where we retain part of the payment for the business and we pay it out uh, when certain things happen, when the business hits a certain level of profitability or, or whatever it might be. Really, you, yeah, it's, it's whatever you negotiate with the seller. So these sorts of deals are all around us. We've got to go looking for them. And you've got to have enough sort of tools in your toolkit to know how to deal with all the very different circumstances that you encounter. So what is, you know, when we think about the model, and I and I understand it, but I want you to share with the... Uh, with our listeners that when you look at buying a business, you know, we're not, what's the difference between this and a franchise, for example, because you're, you're not talking about going and buying a franchise. You're actually talking about going and buying an existing business yeah. and working through it. So give me some kind of head site hit or some highlights into what that means for the buyer. Like, how are we looking for property? Why not a franchise? Is this better than a franchise from your perspective? Okay. Okay, so franchises um, are are really uh, jobs pretending to be businesses, because typically the franchise is run by the franchisee, and the franchisees come out of corporate life, for example, feels that starting a business from scratch is 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 too high risk, so takes some business model that someone else has developed and runs that business. Now the challenge is, yeah, you're you're stuck in a geographical area, you can't sell. Yeah, uh, you know, can't sell outside that area. You maybe are restricted on pricing. You're certainly restricted on products. You can't change the name of the business. You can't change the logo. You can't change the advertising. Mm -hmm. um, you're, you're buying. You're, you're actually working in someone else's business and paying the percentage of what you earn. So I never say to anyone buy a franchise. I say buy an independently owned business. That once you own it, you can do what you want with it. Although, to be fair, the rule of thumb is if you're buying a business that's working and profitable, don't mess with it. Yeah. If if it's making if it's making money, don't start changing things because you might inadvertently change the thing that allows it to make money and the reason that you bought it disappears. So buy a business that's independently owned, 
And uh, what many of my clients do is actually buy several businesses and then put them together to create a larger business. And it's either called a, a buy and build or a roll up where we take multiple businesses and, and put them together and then ultimately one day sell them to uh, to someone else. And I did this during, well, I've done it several times over the, the years, but I did it most recently during the uh, pandemic and I bought 48 businesses and then put them together to create one one large business. And people often ask me, what advice would I give about buying 48 businesses during a pandemic? And my advice is don't buy 48 businesses during a <laughs> pandemic. It was incredibly stressful, in fact, to the point that I ended up in hospital as a result. So I really wouldn't recommend uh, that, to, uh, that, that to anyone. But you can buy one business and be incredibly successful and change your lifestyle, change your income with, with, one, with one deal. So now there's a whole bunch of questions that are coming to mind for me in terms of, you know, how you do this. I mean, 48 businesses, there's a, there's a, there's a philosophy, right? You know, bite off more than you can chew and chew like hell. But in your case, you maybe, <laughs> you know, bit off more than you could chew and you <laughs> choked on it. Right. So those, those are things that, that happen. But when you're looking at a business and you're talking about a particular model, I mean, there's got to be some key insights in there. Are you also looking for businesses that are, let's say, struggle? I'll say struggling and or not optimizing their top line or even their bottom line, so that when you're looking at a balance sheet, you're looking at a you know profit and loss statement, you're examining it and going, you know, something and and I see some opportunity here because I see some things that they're not doing that I think will work, whether whether that be the right team or or marketing or sure. just not really looking at the opportunity for expansion. And that can come from just an owner who's tired and done and wants to get rid of the business in that regard. It's time to exit. But how like are you looking at that type of a business model as well, where you can actually bring value into it and, and take it up? Yeah, absolutely. So so it's always good to buy a business with potential. Um, but you've got to work on the basis that if you buy the business and nothing changes, you're still going to be happy with it. Understood. Because potential, which has been sold to you by the owner as this is going to be amazing and that's going to be amazing, usually isn't. You know, people feel they can improve businesses, but then can't. So I think you should be buying a business that you're happy with just the way it is. Mm -hmm. Now, you said words to the effect of are you buying businesses that uh, yeah, are, are in trouble or not optimized in some way? Well, we're certainly looking for a good deal. And I encourage everyone that I work with, you know, if you're going to buy a business, make sure it's a good deal. Because if you're going to do a deal, why not do a good one rather than an average one or a bad deal? And a good deal is usually delivered to you by a seller who's motivated to sell. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes people get this confused and they think that if a seller's motivated to sell, there must be something wrong with the business. It's a sinking ship. They want to get out as quickly as possible. And of course, that can be the case. Sure. However, sure. what we're looking for is a seller who's motivated to sell for reasons other than the business is in trouble. So that the, the, the biggest reason is usually retirement and age. And with that, unfortunately, often goes health and spending more time with the family. And all of those things are combined. So many of the sellers in any market are going to be 60 plus, have been a little bit beaten up by the pandemic business-wise, uh, and actually em emotionally as well, connected to the business. They've just had enough of being in business. And then now we've got this worldwide recession 
And it's like, the same thing's going to happen all over again, but it might last longer. I was intending to retire at age 65. I'm currently 62. Why am I going to do this for another three years? I might as well sell now. And what that means is all around the world, there is a flood of businesses coming to the market from people who want to sell now. Now, these are perfectly good businesses. Now, the caveat is quite often they've seen better days because maybe the 62-year-old business owner who's been doing it for 25 years doesn't have the same level of enthusiasm as when they started, the same level of energy. So maybe the business is a little lackluster. You know, it, it's not quite as shiny as it used to be. So maybe it does require a little bit of change. And usually that comes about simply by the seller leaving. Mm -hmm. The seller leaves, for example, again, with my client, you know, I'm using this example because I was only talking to him a couple of hours ago. He said, the manager is so happy that I'm listening to his ideas and letting him implement them. So taking out the retiring owner often breathes fresh air into the business and you do see a resurgence in sales. Now you can't count on it, but if you get it, that's a bonus. Well, I think there's a whole bunch of points in there, you know, not the least of which is, you know, a motivated seller, a motivated vendor. I mean, that works in real estate all the time, right? As somebody's done, they yeah. want to get out. And when you look at, you know, a business, and this is something that I'm wondering in terms of your clients and what they're looking for, are you coaching them around actually buying a business as opposed to buying a job? You know, you could go in there and maybe your client that bought the tree farm, did he have tree farm experience or, or not? Is he literally buying the business, buying the team, working with those managers? Yeah. And he's going to be, you know, he's not going out chopping trees and telling people where to, you know, cut the branches kind of thing, right? So you don't want to buy yourself a job mm -hmm. where you turn up every day because it might be a well-paid job, but you're probably no better off than when you started. So I had a, uh, I ran a, a live event in London a couple of weekends ago, and we had a, 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 an audience there, which you know, I've been doing so much on Zoom over the last three years. It's quite nice to see people, yeah. people in, the, in the flesh. Yeah. And I had a dozen of my clients come along to speak to the group. And we called it Dealmakers Live, exclamation mark. Mm -hmm. Everything, I, I didn't prepare anything with any of my clients. I said, I'd like you to come along and tell your story. That was, that was the brief. So these are not professional speakers. I was up on stage with them. I interviewed them to allow them to sort of tell their story without you know, being worried about all these people staring at them in the audience. And interestingly, if I was to look at the commonalities between all the stories that these 12 people told, all different sectors, manufacturing, uh, adult education, uh, retail, yeah, every type of business you can imagine, the commonalities were this. They all wish they started sooner. So I got them going, but they wish they started years earlier. So everyone regrets putting it off. Number two. They all wished that they, their first acquisition had been a bigger one. Now, some of these guys, like Gavin in the printing sector, he's on acquisition number nine. And each one gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and, I, and I say, which was the best one? He says, the most recent one, because it was the biggest. Which was the worst one? The first one, because it was the smallest. So if you're going to put the effort into buying a business, you might as well put the effort into buying a larger business that runs under management so you can still go on holiday and you can enjoy the money that the business makes rather than having to turn up every day. And the effort that goes into buying a large business 
is pretty much the same as the effort that goes into buying a small business, and sometimes it is easier. Now, you, there's two points I want to get to, and just out of curiosity, I mean, you did an event in London, but I know that's not, that may be your home base, but that's not necessarily your only, that's not the only work that you're doing with business owners. Is that a fair assessment? No, no, around the world. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So you're not you're just, yeah. you're not just based out of the UK. You're at, you are based in the UK, but you're doing and working with clients from around the world. I mean, yeah. Just today, I was doing a, a, a Zoom training, and I had people in from North America, from uh, Australia, and from Canada. Beautiful. Now, what about the businesses themselves? Now, how are they showing up? Are you going to uh, businessesforsale.com? What, how are you finding deals? Are they finding you? What's showing up in, in, that, in that way, Jonathan? Yeah, sure. So what we don't want is a business owner who's gone to a business broker, a business sales agent, mm-hmm. who's told them that they're going to make millions of dollars from the sale of their business. Uh, it's patently not true. But the, the business owner doesn't know any different because they're listening to the expert. They sign the contract, hand over the $5,000, and then hope that the business broker is going to sell their business for millions of dollars. And it doesn't happen. And it sits on the market for a year. They get frustrated. They cancel the contract, and they're back to square one. So we don't want people who've got to that point of signing with the business broker because the business broker has filled their head with all these ideas of how much money they're going to make. And... Yeah, if you've got two business brokers after the same business and one says, you can sell your business for $500,000 and the other says, ah, don't listen to him, you can sell it for a million dollars, who's going to get the contract? So yeah, this is how the big numbers get into business owners' heads that just are not realistic. What we want is to be speaking to the owner before they Google, how do I sell my business and they find a business broker, Mm. okay? We want to get to them before that point. So between them thinking, you know what, do I really want to do this for another three years? We want to get them between that point. It's a very, very, very uh, small window of opportunity between that point and then signing up with a business broker. Now, that's the perfect spot because then we can negotiate with the owner directly and you will always get a better deal if you're sitting down face-to-face with the owner of a business who can tell you all about how they want to spend more time with their grandchildren, how they want to get rid of the stress and they hate having staff and the staff hate them and you know, they, they, sure. they want to tell you the whole story. Yeah, yeah. How do we find these people? Yes. Well, how do we find them? I do it the old-fashioned way. I do it by sending letters through the mail. So anyone listening to this is under the age of 30, hasn't seen a letter recently. <laughs> it, it, it's, a, it's an email that you print off and put in an envelope, okay? That's and it hilarious. gets there two days later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what we do is we send letters, and we send letters in the hundreds and the thousands to business owners who own businesses that we are likely to want to buy. So if you want to buy dental practice in Florida, then you write to dental practices in Florida. And there are people called list brokers who will give you all the names and addresses. There are uh, people who own companies called letter shops who will put all the letters in the envelopes and send them out. You don't have to do any of this. You just sit back and wait for the phone to ring. And the people who phone you are the people 
who want to sell. Mm -hmm. And that is where the process starts. That's fantastic. I mean, this is funny about this is that this resonates so much with real estate in terms of finding deals, finding motivated vendors, you know, really, uh, you know, even literally we have what we call a yellow letter campaign. I mean, there's all sorts of ways to actually find deals that are not on market. They're what would be called off market deals. They're actually reaching out to people who Oh, geez, isn't that just interesting? Somebody says they're interested in buying my property. Uh, maybe I'll kick that tire. That's an interesting thought process, you know, uh, way better than going to a realtor because they know that if they go to a realtor, they're going to have, you know, broker fees and all the things that go with it. Yeah. So the next thing you know, they're kicking tires. And that's how deals get found. So it's, it's, it's an interesting crossover in what I'm hearing now. Next question is that, and I know that you do this in your, you share this in your book and on your YouTube channel, et cetera, but give me a little bit of insights into the creativity around the financing part of it, Jonathan, without giving away sure. any of your IP, of course. But, you know, how do, does somebody approach this in terms of where does the money come from? I don't have a million bucks or five million bucks to do all of this. How can we orchestrate this? Sure. So, there's a bit of a mental game going on here as well. There's an attitudinal thing happening here because what most people do is they say, uh, I bet he wants a million dollars for his business. I haven't got a million dollars and that's it where it stops. Then they think about something else and they, they stop themselves. The way I approach it is slightly different. I think, how can I buy this business without it costing me personally a penny? Now, that doesn't mean that the business is free. That doesn't mean that the owner gets nothing. What I'm saying is different. What I'm saying is, how can I buy this business without me personally reaching into my bank account with my life savings and my children's inheritance in? How can I buy this business? So we want the seller to be happy with the deal. So if the seller's not happy, they're not going to sell to you. So we need them to be happy. So the first thing we do is we find out what it is that they want. Now, quite often money is lower down the scale than people think. Everyone thinks if you watch Shark Tank, you think it's all about the money. Mm -hmm. It's about freedom, getting rid of the stress, health, retirement, all of those things we talked about earlier. So money comes far lower down. Now, if you work on the premise that we're going to be buying a business that is currently doing well and making a solid profit, because why would you buy a business that isn't making a solid profit? Sure. Then it stands to reason that over the years of ownership, that owner has made some good money from the business. They've got their money out of the business. And interestingly, the people who've made good money from a business are a lot more relaxed about the money when it comes to selling the business. Interesting. The people, and I've had, oh, hundreds, 500, 600, 700 conversations with, with owners. The people who want the most money are the people who've never made any money from the business, and this is their last chance. Right. <laughs> sure. And they can't, they can't show you profit figures, so they have to tell you about the amazing, amazing opportunity this is and the incredible value you're going to get if you buy their business. So if you've got the owner of a successful, profitable business who wants to get out where money is lower down the list, we can put together a deal that allows them to get out fast. Now, speed has a value. So some buyers will, very strangely, will tell the owner 
this process is going to take six months, you know. Why do they do that? Because that immediately puts people off. We can buy a business in weeks and in a very small number of months. So let's say 12 weeks max. And if it's an asset purchase and we've got a very motivated seller and the deal is not complicated in a couple of weeks, the fastest I've ever done is less than less than 24 hours, but that was a highly motivated seller. And, and it doesn't happen very often, to be to be fair. It's not representative of uh, how these things... And in that case, you have to have a buyer ready to go and pull the trigger, be really clear on what yeah, it is they want. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. we turn it up and say, here's the contract. So, no one uses uh, lawyers. Here's the contract. Sign here, sign here. That's it. Done. Deal done. My brain's firing on all sorts of different questions, Jonathan, but <laughs> keep going. It's a fascinating conversation. So... If we've got an owner who wants to sell, money is lower down their priority list. What we're doing now is thinking, how can we acquire this business Mm -hmm. and do it without using any of our own money? Now, the owner needs to tell us what they need to walk away. Now, I choose my words, words there very, very carefully because what most business buyers do who haven't had any education or training, they go and ask people what they want or have you valued the business or what do you want? Well, there is a big difference between what someone wants and someone needs. And what I always say is don't tell me what you want. Look, we're in a recession or we're in a pandemic or it's January. (laughs) Right. No one is getting what they want right now. Tell me what you need to walk away is a very subtle difference, but it focuses the seller on a different number. I said, look, while you think about that, if you're not going to buy a Ferrari the next day, you might not need as much money as you think. Okay. If you're going to be leasing the building to me and I'm going to be renting this off you for the next 25 years, well, consider that as well. That's mm-hmm. your pension. Mm-hmm. I often say to people, you know what? I think the value is in the building, in the in the real estate. It the value is not in the business. That's often the case, and that is often true. Yeah, I mean, I mean, McDonald's built an empire on it. So, anyways, so we know there's some truth to it. Yes. Anyways, that's great. Does that answer the question? I think so. It gives me some insights into it. I mean, obviously, you're going to have some seller financing as an option, perhaps. It's an interesting thought process because I don't know what it is outside of Canada, but and I you know I know you can work around certain things. But if you sell a business in Canada and you know you sell it for three million dollars or whatever the number is, doesn't matter. But you sell it, you even if you're providing a payment structure and financing on the particular deal, you're still paying tax on the full three million bucks up front. And you know I think it, I want to say it's around twenty percent. And I don't know what that is. You know, I don't know what that tax bill is, you know, outside of Canada. Do you have any idea around that? Is there a way to yeah, work around that? Yeah. So so it's it's similar in the UK. So you you pay the tax on the full amount sale price, yeah. regardless of when you receive the money, if you want the preferential rate. So we've got a 10% preferential rate for the first million in the UK. It used to be the first 10 million. Those were Happy days when it was the first ten million. Yeah, now yeah. it's the now it's the first million. Yeah, yeah. And and then it's twenty percent thereafter. Yeah. So 
Um, but usually the tax is not due for at least another nine months, depending on which months you're 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 buying the the, the businesses. So it's going to be different in every in every uh, country, I guess. Um, but to be fair, we're not there to give tax advice to the seller. The, the seller needs to seek their their own advice and 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 yeah. do that. Um, but what we want is the seller to be happy with the deal. Um, otherwise, they're not going to sell to us. We want to do it so we don't have to use any of our own money. So we might use asset finance, for example. So asset finance uh, works best with businesses with big, heavy assets. So yeah, big machinery, equipment, yeah. assets that's screwed screwed into the concrete floor of the factory. You know, mm. no one can steal them easily. And those assets provide security for a lender to advance you money against those assets. We can use invoice finance. So if uh, if you've got a business that sends out half a million dollars worth of invoices at the end of the month, you can get maybe 80, sometimes 90% advance on those. And as those invoices are paid, then yeah. it pays down. So financed, financed on receivables, given yeah. that the business has a track record of collecting those receivables. Yeah, exactly. Exa- yeah, exactly. They've, they've got to be good quality, yeah. uh, good quality uh, debts. Yeah, absolutely. So you really are, an, uh, you know, you would call yourself, I guess, I would use the term a deal engineer. So you're actually, you know, looking at that business and trying to create a win-win scenario for both the seller and the buyer. I mean, your focus is on the buyer, yes. but ultimately you're trying to bring to uh, we'll call it people, but it could be groups together to to construct that deal so that the the seller actually is you know continues with the motivation to sell that deal. There's a win win in it for them. They can see the light at the end of the tunnel that says we can get this deal done. You can exit. It'll make sense for all parties. So you're really a deal engineer in in yeah. in that and context. We, and we can do it in eight weeks. Yeah. And and then as soon as you say that, people are thinking about the eight week, the eight weeks. Yeah. And it it you could you can see the the stress disappear from someone's face when they realize actually they've got a serious buyer who's going to take over their business. So tell me a little bit about on the buyer side of the uh, conversation, Jonathan, is that, you know, as you're bringing clients on or you're considering buyer clients, you know, what's some of the things that if somebody's listening to this and going, yeah, I think I'm going to reach out to Jonathan, see if I can find that business. You know, what's some of the things, the prerequisites that you're going to kind of run them through to make sure that they, it even makes sense. Even if they have a million dollars burning a hole in their pocket, doesn't necessarily mean they're a qualified buyer. But give me some insights from your perspective on the buyer side of it. Yeah, sure. So so I, I always say you should buy a business that you understand. Mm-hmm. So if someone owns a business already, you know, if you own a business already, you know what sort of business you typically buy. It would be something that's maybe the same as what you do, but in a different part of the country. Maybe it's a complementary business. For example, I can think of a client who's an art dealer, and he bought not another art gallery. He bought a framing uh, packing business. Those big wooden frames they put the artwork into ship. Um, and he was spending a quarter of a million dollars a year with them anyway. So he thought, well, I might as well buy the business and and, and uh, save some of that money. Mm-hmm. So finding complementary businesses makes a lot of sense. Now, if you want to get into business. And buying a business feels an awful lot better than starting a business from scratch. And I've, yeah, I've had startups. I've started businesses from scratch, and yeah, it's exciting, but sometimes exciting in a in a, in a scary way, yeah. and it's not always as great as you think it's going to be. So, 
there's a lot of unknowns there. We're buying a business that's been making the same profits for the past five years. Well, as long as you don't change anything, let's hope it makes the same profits for the next five years. So I always say to people, buy a business that you understand. So I have zero understanding of anything that involves technology. So me buying a technology-based business, I, I, I really wouldn't know. You know I, I, I would be at a disadvantage there. Where some sectors, you can get your head around pretty quickly. Commercial cleaning. I mean, it doesn't take much to learn commercial cleaning, right? Mm-hmm. We kind of, we get, we'll all figure out what commercial cleaning does. That might not be your type, type of business because there are going to be a lot of staff in a commercial cleaning company. And when you've got a lot of staff, that creates a lot of problems. Last year, I had 375 staff. And I, oh, my goodness, every day, every day, there was there was something. So sometimes that just doesn't fit someone's personality. Mm-hmm. So uh, does buying a business suit everyone? Well, no, it's not going to appeal to everyone. I mean, not everyone is going to find that an attractive idea. Uh, I, I find the people who are the most successful are the people who are curious curious about owners, curious about businesses, and they ask lots of questions and they listen to the answers and they understand exactly where the business owner is coming from so they can craft a deal that helps them retire in eight weeks' time mm-hmm. and gets that money out of the bank into their hands in the most tax-effective way. So the curious buyer always seems to be the most successful. They're just the best at asking questions. Now, tell me something. I mean, when you shared uh, with one of your clients who had bought five or six businesses, you know, his best deal was his most recent deal because, you know, it was the biggest deal. The question, I guess, I that comes to me in that regard, Jonathan, is, is that, you know, are you buying businesses like real estate? You know, I draw that comparison again, where you're buying the deal and you're flipping it. Are you buying that business, getting it better operating, improving the bottom line over six months or a year or whatever that might look like, and then turning around and selling that business? Or are you just collecting businesses and operating many business, combination of both? Is there a thought process around flipping a business? Yeah. So, so if, if I may share a, a personal experience of, of that. So in 2016, I was invited to a dinner. It was just a, a, a business uh, dinner. Um, I don't get invited out very often. So I thought I'd go along and, and uh, meet some interesting people. And I was talking to someone before the dinner and he said, have you heard of this particular business? I'd never heard of it. I made a note on my phone and going home that evening, I Googled it and I thought this looks interesting. It was in a sector that I understood, which is digital marketing. And uh, I made contact with the owners. Now, the owners were a private equity firm based in London. They bought this digital marketing business five years earlier as what's called a platform investment. So they bought it as the, the, the starting point of this roll-up, this buy and build, which they'd never done. They'd never, they'd never followed through on it. I still don't know why they didn't. So this business languished in their portfolio and it it shrunk year on year. There was a terrible management team in there, just a dreadful management team that were taking very big salaries and doing an awful job. They all had nice cars, company cars. They weren't doing any work. It was just a mess. And I discovered that the private equity firm wanted to sell it. But the problem was it was making a loss. It was losing $300,000 a year. 
And you should never buy a business that's making a loss unless you know two things. Number one, why it's making a loss, and number two, how to fix it. Mm. Now, because I understood that type of business, I, I knew what the problem was. It was massively overstaffed, and it was doing things that made a loss. And that might sound pretty obvious, but it actually had a core business doing SEO and pay-per-click advertising. It was really, really profitable. Then it had all these other things like video production, social media, web design. It was all making a loss. So I had this crazy plan that if I could buy this business, then I could stop doing all the things that were making a loss, leave the things that were making a profit, and go and sell it to someone else. Because I had no desire to own, operate this Digital business. Marketing. For me, it was very much, <laughs> it, was the, it was the flip. It yeah, was the flip. That's yeah. what I was thinking. So the deal I did with the private equity firm was to buy the business for a dollar, but I would inherit all of the problems. Basically, they could just sign all the problems over to me. And there were lots of problems, lots of tax problems I didn't know about and all, all, all sorts of things. So I spent six months sorting the business out, which was essentially closing down departments, letting people go, unfortunately, but I mean, the business wouldn't have survived otherwise. And I ended up with a, a far smaller business, just 15 people. It started off as about 100. 15 people in smaller offices, just one, one room, doing the profitable bits of the business. Now, before I'd even bought it, I was asking some friends in the sector, if I owned that business, who would I sell it to? And they were saying, they gave me two names. They said, sell it to this person or this person. And I ended up selling it to one of those. And I sold it in a deal. And I'm doing this in pounds. And I'm not sure how it translates into dollars, but 1.3 million pounds. Mm -hmm. And I've got no idea what the dollar uh, yeah, equivalent. Yeah, it's drops. You can, yeah, the pounds change so much that I don't know. I don't know the math off the top of my head either. But anyways, it's. I, I know. I know it's about it's about 1.8 million US dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was a bit of skill in that, but there were a lot of sleepless nights and a little bit of luck. Mm -hmm. And I would never recommend anyone does something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's not a great strategy. Buy a profitable business and and let it run for its profits, trying to turn a business around is high risk. You can do it, but it's high risk. Yeah, and a, a lot of work to go into it. So that's great. Yeah. So, you know, I really understand now what it is that you're doing, but, you know, give me a little bit of background, Jonathan, into your journey. I mean, you didn't come out of the chute, so to speak, thinking I'm going to be this. Like, how did you evolve as a young man? Did you come out of university or college or what was it that took you on this path of, and of being an entrepreneur? You know, were your parents entrepreneurial? These are always, for me, interesting questions because a lot of people, you know, that I've met over the years are entrepreneurs and they don't necessarily come from an entrepreneurial background. And I look at my guests, I listen to my guests, and it is interesting to note that some of the most successful entrepreneurs that I have on the show actually come from an entrepreneurial background where mom, dad, or both were in fact entrepreneurs. What was it for you? Well, I was always fascinated by business people. I mean, it wasn't, uh, I, I was never particularly interested in sports and uh, it was never sort of, you know, movie, movie actors. It was, it was always business people for me, even mm. as a, as a teenager, uh, that interested me. My parents were uh, self-employed, so they had a business, mm -hmm. but I don't think they ever perceived themselves to be business owners. They perceived themselves to work for themselves because without them, there wouldn't have been a business. They were dance teachers. Mm -hmm. And so they were doing what they loved doing and they were being paid for it. Mm -hmm. 
And I went to university to study French, discovered that I was very bad at French, but I also wanted to to be in business. I wanted to start a business. The, the degree course was four years, and I left after the first term. And uh, it was a big jump. I was the, the first person in my family to ever go to university. So it was um, my brother and my sister followed a, a few years later. So it wasn't an entirely disappointing situation for my parents. But I, I dropped out of university, and I must admit, I never, ever regretted that. Mm. I often wondered back then when I was 19, would, would, I, would I regret it one day? And I, and I haven't. I, ne- I never, it, it's never bothered me, actually. But I started doing my own thing. I've never had a job. I've never worked for anyone else. And I, I think there's an appeal to that, but... There is a stress that goes with it as well. Sometimes I have thought how lucky people are that they turn up, they go somewhere, someone else tells them what to do, they they get paid at the end of the month. It all seems so simple. It all seems so straightforward. Where, yeah, I I I eat what I kill. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I've I've got to hustle because if I don't hustle, I don't get I don't get paid. Right. But actually, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. I've got this burning desire to make things happen. And and I don't know where that comes from, but um, it's not it's not fading. It's still it's still there. Thirty years later. And what about your? You mentioned your brother and sister. Did they go on to get jobs? Did they go on? Uh, the you know did they take the path of yeah. being self employed or entrepreneurs? Yeah, my sister has worked for other people, and uh, and my brother more self employed. Yeah, I I I think if you leave it too late, sometimes yeah, when he's got three children and lots of responsibilities. So, yeah, you, you don't want to take too many risks, uh, I think, because you or less risks perhaps as you as you get older and have more responsibilities. Yeah. Um, but but I I'm certainly the person who's become the sort of the dedicated entrepreneur. And yeah, you know, I've, I've got a a little girl who's uh, who's seven in a few weeks' time, and yeah, you know, I I explained to her the difference between a job and a business, and um, uh, and and yeah, she's I think she's starting to uh, she's starting to get it. She'll get it one day. That's for <laughs> She'll sure. She'll get it one day. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's interesting. So when you look into your future, you know, I often joke is that, you know, uh, I'm blessed to have, uh, you know, between my wife and I, we operate three, arguably four different businesses. And, uh, you know, I'm on the Freedom 95 program. I literally love what I do. Uh, I get to work at a pace that, although it can get pretty intense, you know, ultimately I work at a pace that I enjoy because I enjoy being uh, busy. Like I enjoy being productive in that regard. You know, sitting on a beach or even traveling the world doesn't light me up. And, that changed, I think, with COVID, you know, and now being in airports, I'm just going, no, I'm not interested in this battle of travel. Uh, but that's just me. So I'm just saying for when you look into the future, how do you see it? I love what I do. I love being the contribution that I get to be given the business that, uh, that I own, the business says that I own. Uh, how do you see the future that way? Yeah, w- way back when I was uh, a young, younger teenager, I was sort of 13, 14, I, I always wanted to be an actor. And come to think of it, I would have been a terrible actor. You know, I'd have been just an awful, awful actor. I, I'm too self-conscious to be a to to be an actor. Um, but I do enjoy giving presentations, uh, mm-hmm. standing in front of audiences, and 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 teaching things. I mm-hmm. really, really love it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people say, "Well, Jonathan, if you if you're so good at buying businesses, why why do you just focus on that? Why do you teach other people how to do it?" 
because I enjoy doing it and mm-hmm. I can have conversations like this with you and we never would have met if it hadn't been for this. And yeah, yeah I talk to people all around the world and it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. I get paid for it too, but it is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And I really can see a future where I'm I'm doing this forever. I'm about to start buying another group of businesses in manufacturing. Uh, that's later in the year. I just wanted to take a year out from the last one to have a sort of a clean break for a year and then start again. So I do it as well as teach it. And I, I think that gives it the reality. Uh, what people people tell me that they like it, that I, I'm not all rainbows and uh, and unicorns and uh, sunshine. Yeah, I, I, sh- I show what can go wrong, the downsides of it as well, because you've got to be realistic about these things. There's a lot that can go wrong. Yeah, if you know what you're doing, it can be amazing. But if you don't know what you're doing, you could have problems. You know, I've always been more, you know, like I've been a, always been a proponent of the thought process and I use the language often, which is when you're, you know, when your vocation becomes your vacation, you'll never work another day in your life. Now that sounds a little cliche, I get it, but th- that is the truth. You know, when yes. you are faced and you're in a business that you enjoy and it doesn't mean it comes with, it doesn't come without a lot of challenges because uh, all of my businesses are mature and have had them for many years, and they still come with challenges, you know, whether it be people or economy or industry, uh, they're all in different industries. And so it is an interesting thing that it doesn't shut me down. It just means, oh, okay, well, here's a problem that we have to solve. Let me tap into my years of experience, my wisdom, here's what I know. It actually is slightly more annoying, but it's that the, but the problems are more solvable given my experience as a business owner. So I'm looking at it different from that perspective. You mentioned in what we were talking about earlier, Jonathan, that you know you're encouraging people to, you know, have some familiarity with the business. Do you do you also have a conversation with people going, you know, you better really love what you do. You better really look at this business and go, I can get lit up about doing that or some portion of what you're doing around the business. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I don't necessarily think people need to be excited about the business that they buy and and own. I think that the excitement comes from doing the deal. Mm. And yeah, I was interviewing uh, one of my clients a couple of weekends ago, and he owns four manufacturing businesses. Uh, six million of annual revenue. He works on the businesses 10, to, uh, 10 hours a week and plays golf twice a week. That's mm. his, his ideal life. And I said, so tell me a bit about these manufacturing businesses. Tell me how it all works. And he got a little bit sort of like, uh, yeah, um, well, I know that we make plastic moldings. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't really entirely sure exactly mm-hmm. what the businesses did. He said, you know, I've got a, I've got a CFO, a chief financial officer. Um, I get my own reports every week, so I know exactly what's happening from a financial point of view. I'm the only signatory on the bank, so I control the money going out the bank, so Mm. that can't disappear. But the enjoyment for him is hunting down a deal, negotiating a deal, getting the deal over the line, punching the air, and then doing the next one. Mm -hmm. So I think that is, you can have a lot of passion for business. I mean, you know, again, thinking back to when I was a teenager, I didn't ever want to be in a particular business. I just wanted to be in business. I just wanted to, that that excitement of you know growing a business, of selling a business, and yeah, you know, in more recent years, buying businesses and selling them. I, I love that perspective because you know there is a part of it that, in the context that we just discussed, you know, if you're great at 
managing or operating businesses or not. And I don't mean in the trenches operating. I mean, can you look at a a particular industry, a particular market? Do you know how to put a team in place? Are you able to understand the nuances of a balance sheet and a financial statement? You know, really getting into, you know, can we set uh, a context for uh, a, a CFO or a COO or your management team. And I mean, if you can manage a managed team who's competent, if you can make sure that your management team is competent, then it really changes how that uh, how you operate, where you are in the in the context to your to your client's point. I don't need to know what we manufacture. I just need to know what that management team is up to, what the financials are, how are we showing up in the marketplace. I mean, that's a different way of actually. That's true ownership of a business. Yeah. So you've got to think of yourself as an investor mm-hmm. rather than a manager or an operator. Yeah. And always when you 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 know you hear about. You know, people who started a business, they, they always tell you that they work seven days a week. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, you know, now that's all well and good. And, yeah, you can do that in your 20s. You don't want to do that in your 50s. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's getting that balance right, that work-life balance right. And I've been terrible at getting that right over the years. I've got mm-hmm. it completely wrong over the years. And I'm now working really hard to, um, to, 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 get it, to get it right. But I think the thrill of the chase is what turns a lot of people sure. on with it. Because that that is really... That is so exciting, doing something that not many people do. I mean, private equity, buy businesses. Mm-hmm. Individuals buying businesses, there's a lot less, aren't there? A mm-hmm. lot less. So interesting. I love the, you know, the thought process behind it. And I think that, you know, even for entrepreneurs that are listening to this, if I've learned nothing, and I'm a slow learner, but ultimately, you know, every day I have to look and say, you know, what can I do to move forward to work, you know, to make sure that I'm replacing myself every day. That's where the growth of a business lives and the opportunity to exit a business lives. You know, what can I do to make sure that, you know, the that the business will operate without me? And, and those are, if you're buying a business to be an operator, but if you're an operator today, you have to be looking at it saying, okay, what's going to make this appealing is me not having to be at the helm. And so that means putting the right team in place and making it a saleable uh, business. Uh, and, and what's your thoughts on that? Or how do you view yeah. that perspective? Oh, absolutely. The, the, the biggest factor that damages value when you're selling a business is the dependence upon you, the owner. Mm-hmm. That, that is the most damaging factor. It will, it will seriously impact your value. So you need to think, I mean, we talked about franchises earlier. Franchises in the context of systemization are a great model. Mm. So your business needs to be systemized with everyone doing their part without you playing a part as much as possible. Mm -hmm. So the way I've done this in the past is that I write down, and it takes several days to do this. You have to keep coming back to it. Write down everything that the business does, everything from answering the phone, opening the post, signing for deliveries, dealing with a customer complaint or customer problem, dealing with a... So you write all these things down. And then you start putting them into categories, yeah, into groups. So all the all the financial things are over here and all the operations things over here and the customer service things over here. And then say to yourself, who is the best person to do each of these things? And you've also written down a list of all the things that you do. And you start putting all the things that you do into these groups as well. Well, that's really a customer service thing. I don't need to do that. And that's really a marketing thing. I get the marketing person to do that. So your list shrinks down to nothing. But then you you have a new list. The new list is 
I need to see reports from each of these people on a potentially daily, most probably weekly basis. Mm -hmm. So I know what's happening because you are the investor. You're the investor. You've invested 10 years of your life or you've invested your money into this business. Mm -hmm. And you now want to see that it's being operated efficiently. And letting people do their jobs and getting out of the business is quite possibly the thing that's going to double the value of your business. Yeah, it's not only going to double the value, my experience with it in my own case, and as well as working with other entrepreneurs, is that it actually getting out of the way is what empowers the rest of the team if you do it right. And they're actually all of a sudden their longevity to be with the business just doubled. Because so often what turns people off is I got nowhere to go. I got an owner that doesn't have a vision anymore. I'm bumping up against a ceiling of limitation, which is the limitation of vision by the owner of the business or, you know, the operator in this case. So it really does make a difference. You know, my own experience with, so one of the businesses I've got and still own to this day, I've had for 38 years. And, you know, I, I haven't, it's a, it's a very successful retail business that I literally, literally haven't had the key to the door since 2006. And, Amazing. you know, my job literally is once a week I get on a call and I'm talking to my general manager and my two or three other key people. Now that's it. And always knowing this, that I'm looking at where the risks are, you know, in my case, my risk is, well, if I lose my general manager, then, yeah, you know, then it's like, gosh, because he's really operational. But in the background, and he knows it, is what I'm also doing is I'm trying to grow him. So, you know, guess what? We need to know what your backup is, number one, for you to grow and get to the next level of income and all the things you want to do. And to be honest with you, if you get hit by the proverbial bus, it puts my income, your income, and it puts the business at risk. So we always got to be risk mitigation. Now that's a level of conversation that changes the kind of view by a management team. And so, uh, you know, I've, I've really been kind of focused on that the past several years. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's working. So in my case, I don't really want to sell the business because why would I, you know, it's a, it's kind of an annuity that I think I can keep going for uh, many years to come. So that's well, why I'm yeah, looking at it. I, I, absolutely. And the way you set it up means that uh, it, it does just produce that income yeah. Yeah, month after month, year, year yeah. after year. Uh, it's quite an unusual set of circumstances. You've done something that most people maybe set out to achieve, but never do achieve. I mean, yeah, yeah. you're, you're uh, a role model for people who want to, 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 to systemize their business and have it run without them. Um, the sad fact of the matter is the majority of businesses are so reliant upon the owner. You take the owner out, there isn't a business left. I mean, there's an Italian restaurant just down the road from me, and uh, I know the owner slightly, and I heard that he wanted to sell. So I went to have a chat with him, and I was quite interested because he told me he had £120,000 in the bank. And I thought, ah, I can use the cash in the bank to mm -hmm. buy this uh, buy this business. And he's got a he's got a, a deadline. He needs to be back in the Czech Republic. He's he's not Italian as it happens. He's from the Czech Republic. Back in the Czech Republic uh, by the middle of March. So he's got six weeks. Uh, six weeks from now, and he needs to be back home. And he's got to sell the business before then. The thing is, he won't. He won't sell the business before then. The challenge is, he's the chef. He's the manager. Mm -hmm. He's the part time waiter. He probably does the cleaning in the evenings uh, when it closes as well. You take him out and you've got to put three people in. And when you put three people in, you haven't got any profit left. That's the problem.
Yeah, that's a classic technician, you know, owning a business, which is more about owning a job, as we've talked about a little bit, yeah. on, you know, and, and understanding it. So when you look at your own journey along the way, now, do you, other than your existing business, do you still own businesses? Do you still have operating businesses that you're the owner of? How do you function yourself in terms of your what you've accumulated aside from your real estate portfolio when it comes to business? Do you still own businesses in that regard, Jonathan? Yeah. So, so, so my model is, uh, is is to is to own for a, a small number of years and then sell to someone else. And the the longest I've ever owned anything is seven years. And that felt like it's probably two years too long to be to be fair. So I sold everything last summer. So for the past six months, I've been trying to get my work life balance back. I had some, I had a few little health things from from stress actually last year, which I I must admit caught me by surprise. I've always considered myself to be a a very robust individual who can handle uh, just about anything, but uh, it, it must have caught up with me and uh i had uh, stomach pains like like oh my goodness you wouldn't i never I, i'm one of those guys that never goes to the doctor mm -hmm. but i had stomach pains that made me go to the doctor and immediately i was booked into a hospital for a, a colonoscopy mm -hmm. which isn't the most uh, pleasant of um uh, of procedures and they couldn't find anything mm -hmm. now that's good but it also made me slightly embarrassed because i thought well if, if you told me that it was an ulcer causing all this pain then i could just blame it on the ulcer but in actual fact it was psychosomatic it was it was induced by stress mm. and uh and that's slightly more embarrassing to say you're so stressed that yeah you've got the equivalent of a stomach ulcer and uh you know i i i uh, I, I i got some got some help to reduce the stress and the conclusion was my business was damaging my health and i'd grown a very large business very, very quickly without a great management team. It was all a little bit sort of held together by sellotape and bits of bits of string. And a lot was on my on my plate, on my desk. So I sold it to my business partner. Uh, and and she'd already found the same time. She knew she knew what was going through my mind. She found a financial backer to take it to the to the next level. So I exited then. And I've got to say, despite the fact I yeah, I put a lot of work in for three years. I didn't really see the same um, outcome that I was, uh, the outcome that I really wanted. It was the best move I ever, I ever did. My my daughter was doing her spelling, bought her spelling from home from school, and uh, she's going through the spellings. And uh, one of the words was unhappy, mm. and she looked at me. She said, "That's you." Mm. Oh, oh. <laughs> and uh, I I said, "What do you think makes me unhappy?" And she said, "Work." Mm. I thought, well. There you go. That's that that that's all I need to know. Interesting. You know, uh, what is it? What's it, uh, James Corden? Is it Corden out of the UK? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, yeah. Yeah. So he gave up his talk show or whatever they call it, his late night show, uh, yeah. for the same reason. Kids, right? They're pretty powerful in terms of our decision making. You know, when you look at that time of stress that you went through, you know, part of the Everyday Millionaire podcast is I do a everyday millionaire mindset matters. So we do a segment called mindset matters. My wife is an Olympic mental performance coach. And we really kind of look at the mindset component of it, which I think is a, an interesting topic because, you know, in the space that, you know, I operate in, we often have to go back to mindset, you know, people, you know, tell me how, tell me how, tell me how, you know, the, the hows are actually 
probably the easiest part of any of it, whether it be buying real estate. And from your perspective, you know, the hows of buying the business are the most fun. And, and, but it's always, you know, now it's, I don't want to call it cookie cutter. Every business is slightly different, but the methodology remains the same. We can, yeah. you can learn how, but you have to still, yeah. and this is my own thought process. On, I'd like to hear your perspective, Jonathan, is mindset is a big part of the game. You have to be able to, you know, understand, you know, there's a, there's a phrase that I often use, which is, you know, it's not the weight you carry that breaks you down. It's the way you carry the weight. And, you know, I know that many years later through the experience, the wisdom perhaps that I've gained is that, you know, shit happens and it's going to happen. And you got to be able to just kind of, okay, yeah, okay, we're dealing with this. But if you carry it heavy, then it's heavy. That's what breaks you down. If you realize it's just what is, you know, and you'll get through this too, and you look at it differently. Now, I'm just even giving that an example from a mindset mm -hmm. perspective. How do you, when you're dealing with your buyers or your sellers, how do you kind of, what does that mean for you? Is there is there a component of it for you? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, yeah, I think it was uh, Henry Ford who said, uh, if you can, if if you think you can, you can. If you think you can't, you can't. Yeah, and you're right in both. You're right both times. Yeah, yeah. So much of 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 anything in life is self belief. And if I could go back and tell my sort of child self uh, one thing, it would be to believe in yourself more. Uh, and I think that self belief really dictates the decisions that we make in life. And in, in many ways, uh, in, in business, how far we how far we go. So you've got to believe in yourself, and it's that that inner game of um, of of making sure that we're telling ourselves the right things, and telling ourselves that we can do it. We can do this. We can solve this problem. And and everything in business comes down to solving problems and making decisions. And the better you are at solving problems and making decisions, the further forward you go in business. Uh, and some people are very good at solving problems, but not good at making decisions and vice versa. So the better you get at both of those, I think that moves you forward tremendously. And I think it helps being around the right people as well, because your mindset is going to be influenced by the mindsets of the people that you spend the most time with. I mean, they say, don't they, that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So if you spend time with people who are telling you you can't do it and why are you taking all that risk and do you really want to do that and why shouldn't you be happy with what you've got and who do you think you are then then you're not going to proceed but if you surround yourself with people who say you can buy a bigger business this is how i did it 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 pulls you up so getting around the you know community mm -hmm. is just so so important and these days you could have an online community your community doesn't have to be in your town you could have an online community that pulls you up 100 percent yeah. I mean, community, I think, is incredibly important. Of course, the Real Estate Investment Network, you know, we've got a community right across the country and of like-minded real estate investors. But along that community, you know, it's the culture of sharing, the culture of collaboration and supporting each other, right? So there's, there's a part of that, which is, you know, as a business owner, we have to create environments for ourselves to succeed. And whether we create them ourselves or enter them, we have to be and have the awareness to step into those environments to make sure that we're actually not drinking our own Kool-Aid either, that we're seeing what's outside of our kind of view or our vision. And, uh, you know, from your perspective, and I know from mine, you know, when you're sitting down and you're speaking or as much as we're 
educating as much as we're speaking, inspiring, and or giving content that is meaningful when you're having those conversations with young entrepreneurs, in my case, young entrepreneurs and 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 real estate investors, there's lots of ideas and inspiration that just comes out of it from just being in that environment on both sides of the equation. I'm sure that you find that as well. Yeah, ab absolutely. And you know, when you get around people who, who are full of ideas and inspire you, then you, you, can, you come out of a discussion, out of a meeting with those people walking on air. You feel incredible. You feel like you can take on the world. Uh, and then you meet your negative friends who... Uh, they haven't changed in 20 years and they're never going to who uh, immediately bring you back bring you back down so part of what we we do at dealmakers is is we've developed a community an online community we've got uh, 680 nice uh, current and past clients who've been on our 12 month program in 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 that community and and that is just where people collaborate and like you say I love that word culture because it's this culture of support it makes all the difference. And in fact, if I was to say one of the things that makes the biggest difference between people that I see succeed in the business buying world and people who struggle, the people who succeed are around the right people. Yeah. Without a doubt. So, so important. I love it. Well, Jonathan, I want to say, you know, thanks for your time. But before we wind down, there's some, you know, what I call rapid fire, which are not generally too rapid fire. Some questions that we like to have a little bit of fun with, dig a little deeper. Are you ready for some rapid fire questions? No, I go for it. Okay, Fred. easy one. Android or Apple? Oh, Apple. Oh, gosh. Okay, you say that with such... <laughs> Obviously, it's Apple. <laughs> Do you have a favorite tune or a favorite band that you like to listen to? No, I've never really been into music. Not, uh, not my thing at all. Got it. Favorite movie? I would say my favorite movie was one that was remade recently, but I first saw it back in the 1980s, and that was June. I'm big into science fiction, oh, and yeah. uh, I, I I know parts of that movie off by heart. I remember that movie. I haven't seen it, but I totally remember that movie, and I remember it was a, it was a really good movie. I enjoyed it as well. So that's kind of, wow, I haven't had that one come up. That's great. <laughs> Favorite swear word? Oh, I don't swear. No, I'm, I'm oh, British. Oh, you're one of those guys. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm British. Okay, listen, I've had some Brits on here. They swear like troopers, so okay. that's all good. Your room, your desk, or your car, what do you clean first? Desk. Very good. And final question, what are you grateful for today, Jonathan? My health. Isn't that so important? And that's fantastic. I agree. You know, without health, you're nothing and uh, the rest of it doesn't matter. So looking exactly. after yourself and staying healthy. And uh, that's fantastic. I want to say thank you for your time. I'm always grateful for my guests like you. I'm grateful for my health and for my family. And I want to say thank you for joining me on the Everyday a Millionaire podcast. Jonathan's been great talking to you. Thank you, Patrick. Much appreciated. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.